everybody. Welcome to the Tech Analysts Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Shrout, Principal Analyst at Shrout Research, joined by Patrick Moorhead, Principal Analyst at More Insights and Strategy. Patrick, how are you doing on this Friday afternoon? I am crispy and burnt. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been on the road for almost two weeks. Not straight, but uh, I did Dell Tech World and I did Microsoft Build. And then before that, I was in San Diego for a few days. So yep. um, I'm kind of ready to not. Uh, and then I, I take uh, I take a 5 a.m. morning flight to New York on, on Monday morning. So Yeah, I'm heading out Monday morning as well. Nonetheless, regardless of how much we travel, there are still stuff to talk about. I want to jump into yes. it because there is a lot on here. Starting with NVIDIA's earnings, they announced a little bit later than everybody else. Uh, I don't know if that's normal or not, but they're like two full weeks behind, which I appreciate having a little gap there between stuff. Um, let's talk about how much money they made, which, as it <laughs> turns out, was was quite a bit. A bunch of records, right? Record revenue in several segments. And overall, they had $3.2 billion in revenue. Um, the majority of that is $1.723 billion in gaming. But huge growth in data center, up to $700 million. Uh, auto, up a little bit sequentially. Uh, 145 million OEM and IP was an interesting will be an interesting conversation that's up to 387 million and sequentially that's more than double um, and uh, even over their best quarter kind of listed across this their previous best quarter was Q2 fiscal 18 which there there's are different than calendar quarters uh, where they had 250 million so um, what what was most interesting to you here other is is that the data center growth still just expanding or uh was it gaming staying stable quarter to quarter yeah to me it was probably data center i mean you know gaming gaming growth um year on year is impressive but you know you know there are cryptocurrency in there um even though the at least the discrete um crypto stuff is in oem and ip uh right now but this is just the continued march of, of two things. It's machine learning training driven yep. by V100s. And I'm sure there's some P40 inference in there as well. And also uh, what a lot of people don't talk about is how much more popular VDI is getting uh, right now. And it's primarily a, a security thing. And right. typically you'll have NVIDIA graphics um, driving VDI and and also point-to-point um, -point, uh, um, hosted computing, yep. which will show up in that number too. How about you? The the gaming stuff was interesting. I, it, it's it's two two avenues to look at. If you look at it sequentially, Q four of eighteen to Q one nineteen, it actually went down one percent. Um, but if you look at it on a year-on-year -year basis, Q1 2018, their fiscal year, they were at one just over one billion dollars in revenue, and now they're at one point seven billion dollars in revenue. And to me, what sticks out even more so than that humongous increase is the fact that for all the attention that NVIDIA gets for its AI, its machine learning products, automotive, uh, all of that doesn't add up to the value of gaming to this company, right? It's 1.7 versus 1.5 billion of revenue, 1.7 of that being gaming. Now, it's possible that after another quarter or two, that may cross and gaming will be less than 50% of, of total revenue, or we may actually see gaming grow uh, along the same way. So I think it's interesting for 
all the people and kind of analysts and media that talk about Nvidia leaving the gamers behind or not really, you know, depending on that or needing, you know, kind of kind of ignoring gaming, they're not doing that. They understand that 1.7 billion dollars of revenue comes from that segment. They're not going to lose any market share. They don't want to lose any of that market share for sure. The other interesting thing was uh, Jensen, CEO of NVIDIA, made a statement in the Q&A after the call saying that they, or maybe it was Colette, that made the statement that they expected crypto revenue to actually drop to around a third of the current level compared to this quarter uh, in the upcoming quarter. So that obviously scared some people. You know, the stock price went down a little bit actually after their earnings and stuff because of that. Um, and it's also worth noting that in that o- they did also admit in that OEM and IP they included the the uh, uh, crypto, but only the stuff that they sold specifically for cryptocurrency and blockchain processing. Anything that was sold through their AIBs, you know, somebody who goes to EVGA or whoever and buys five thousand video cards, that's actually all included in the gaming income, uh, gaming revenue because because it's just really hard to track from their point of view. Yeah, so we can expect that OEM and IP number to to be dramatically lower. And I would also, I mean, we don't know how the market's going to shake out in, in gaming. I mean, gaming is growing through things like esports, but uh, and I'm sure there is pent up gaming demand for people who want to buy more reasonably priced uh, 1080s and yes. 1060s. Yes, and in fact, Nvidia um, kind of had a marketing. Maybe not a marketing campaign, but a social media campaign with this. They they posted a picture on their official GeForce Twitter account uh, with uh, container ships going across with like uh, stock incoming or or something to that effect, and the the media kind of bid on it as they as they tend to do. And sure enough, I think the day of or the day later, Nvidia announced that they had had restocked their geforce.com stores with 1060s, 1070s, 1080s, all that type of all that type of hardware. Um, how long that lasts, I think, is obviously the question that people have, but my indication would be that knowing the shortages and the headache that this has caused for gamers and consumers and resellers and builders all around that if they weren't at least fairly confident that things were equalizing, that they had consistent stock coming for you know at least the immediate future, they wouldn't go out of their way to start promoting this uh, in, in the fashion that they did. So I think that is a good sign. And I, and I do think that gamers, the, the surge of gaming sales will help offset crypto sales to some degree. I don't know if it will be completely. Um, because now we're obviously, it's been long enough, people may start wonder, be wondering about what the next-gen stuff is going to look like and when it's going to be available. So we're back into the maybe the standard cycle this time around. Other than NVIDIA's earnings, we wanted to talk about Google I.O. and MS Build. Google I.O. I think we'll just touch on first here. Uh, they, announced some, they announced some interesting things. Duplex, uh, you know, robot simulating, booking, uh, robots booking your hair appointments for you, which I think is very important for both of us. Uh, new AI for photos. One thing that stood out to me was they, they very briefly discussed the TPU 3.0. Right, so TPU is their tensor processing unit. It is the Google-designed hardware uh, specific to AI processing. Uh, they announced it first in 2016. 2.0 came out last year. 3.0 this year. 
They didn't go into a whole bunch of detail other than during the keynote, CEO uh, Sundar said during the uh, during the thing that it, that TPU 3.0 would have quote eight times the performance of the previous generation, and uh, that it was going to require liquid cooling to get those performance levels. And they didn't really go into a whole bunch of that. They showed some pictures, and then I think in a separate session uh, later that day, they showed some more some more images and talked a little bit about it. Um, and a lot of people kind of immediately bid into this 8x performance improvement and assumed that Google had made some radical architectural advancement in how they were going to do tensor compute on on these units. And in fact, after some after some more diving and looking at uh, how these pods were designed, they're not talking about 8x performance per processor. They're actually talking about 8x performance per pod. And a pod is just the eccentric Google way of talking about a, a server or a system, right? A, a collection of, of IO and processors and storage and all that stuff kind of built in. And what happened, what happens is, is if you start to dive into it, you'll realize that they've actually doubled the number of processors in the pod itself from 256 to 512, indicating that they actually have, uh, you know, maybe a, a 2x improvement in architectural capability as well. No, I'm sorry, they actually quadrupled the number of processors in there. So they've made it very dense, which is one of the reasons they had to move to water cooling, because when you start to, to pack these chips in very tightly, you run out of room for big heat sinks and uh, airflow and, and things like that. But it also is you know, maybe indicative of some, some thermal constraints that they might be in if they're trying to push clock speeds up a certain amount to, uh, uh, to get to these performance levels. It was an interesting announcement with not a whole lot of detail and uh, Again, anytime you get Google to announce hardware, it's going to be sexy, right? People are going to be paying attention and they're going to want to be excited about it. Um, but also knowing that that TPU 2.0, the cloud version, is just now like it's not that's not even supposed to be available to people outside of Google until the end of this year. Uh, there's really no timeline for TPU 3.0 at this point. I just wish the company would be a little bit more overt in in what it's doing. I mean, in, in a way, it's like amateur hour um, with the amount of information that goes out. And I think, I think uh, from a, a comms perspective, they get the big hit and they give the credibility. And then for the next six months, they're, they're chasing, you know, answering different questions on, on, on what this thing is and, and, and what this thing isn't. So yeah. I, I just, you know, I just wish the company would just be more overt in what they're doing and and maybe it's clever marketing maybe it's uh them not wanting uh the competition to know what they're doing uh maybe it's engineering trying to justify uh their big budgets uh who knows this is just not the way that you talk about uh computing in at least in anything that i've seen that's been credible in in the last 30 years and to me, the biggest challenge is, you know, comparing uh, TPU V1, which is one chip, uh, to uh, cloud TPU, which is uh, four cards uh, and includes uh, a bunch of system memory and storage to the pod. Right. And then now, from one angle, I, can, I, I see that that could be what people could care about in the end, but I think showing apples to apples is is important, particularly as TPU is being used as the magic blue crystals of why you should use their cloud offering. 
Yeah, it's it, and it's also I think you don't have access to TPU yet. Google does. Google's using it for its own internal purposes, but until TPU Cloud actually comes online, which is something that again they've said by the end of this year, you don't have access to even you know any generation of TPU directly if you're doing your own kind of AI or machine learning compute stuff uh, to get done. And I, I think in reality, Google understands, they probably understand internally that they're the, the, the product they're building is very specific to them. It's very specific to one workflow, TensorFlow, um, and it doesn't allow for a lot of flexibility for other people, but they you know, are trying to be an open and honest and forthright company. And so they want to allow people to have access to it. But also if you're Google, you understand that the race for AI is very important. So you, you maybe don't want your competitors to be able to access your hardware and see what it can do and, and do all that uh, uh, from just from a competitive standpoint. Um, but I do think standing up there and, and, and making claims about performance without being very forthright about what it is ind- indicative of um, maybe maybe sets people who don't really pay attention to things as closely off on a tangent that uh, uh, you know benefits them and and only them. Yeah, I don't want people to think that I'm um, I'm sour on the whole thing. No, I'm not. I like great tech like everybody. I just think people deserve to know what this thing is and how it works and how why it's better. That's all. Yep. Agreed. Anything else at Google I.O. really particularly stand out for you? There's Android P announcement. Uh, There's the duplex calling, the photo AI. Yeah, th- those were really the highlights for me. I mean, it's interesting. In, in I, I've been following probably five I.O.s. I've, I've attended three. This one seemed to be a bit... Um, I don't know, uh, less of a big bang, and maybe that's because smartphones are maturing, and we've already had the big dose of of these home um, uh, smart speakers and, mm-hmm. and, and things like that. But, I mean, I, I love some of the features. I mean, Google Photos is my go-to uh, place to store and, and, and use photos. Um, Android P is, I mean, the two biggest things I saw in that is you're going to get better battery life and be able to better manage unplugging, which I'll be honest with you, and maybe this is my Midwest roots kicking in here. Um, I just find it interesting that that any company, and whether it's Facebook or Google, uh, people start questioning things. Uh, you know, we've always had the ability to. I mean, of course they know everything we're doing, so we can track it. Uh, right. Now, giving us tools to unplug, uh, I just. I find at this point, um, call me skeptical. Sure, that's fair. The, the I think the photo AI stuff is is really interesting and, and potentially incredibly powerful. I still think this is one of my biggest personal problems that I need solved is organization of all this digital media. Photos first, video next. Uh, in my in my order there, right? Being able to keep track of all these pictures I've taken on many different phones over the years that are served in different places and, uh, you know, have different, you know, metadata stored in them and being able to use artificial intelligence to go through them, detect what you're looking at so you can have some kind of relevant search capability is awesome. The duplex call stuff was, was really interesting. If I'm not going to, we don't have to walk through the whole thing here on this podcast, but if you didn't listen to it, you should go do it. It's basically, it was a, this is a several year out project where Google has artificial intelligence that will, call places that 
don't have online booking systems essentially and you know negotiate uh, an appointment for something. Oh, I want a dinner reservation or I need a hair appointment or uh, book this train ticket or what have you. And it was a very impressive demo. So impressive that I got the impression watching Twitter <laughs> that many people didn't believe that this was taking place, right? This was a recording that we heard. Um, you you kind of just have to take Google's word for it that they're not going to lie about this, which I, I don't really think that they would lie about it. Um, but is this maybe two examples that worked out of a hundred that failed miserably or something. I, I don't know. Uh, it was really neat. And I would absolutely be down with the idea of, um, never having to, you know, make these types of calls again and moving from something like what they call a Google assistant today to actually legitimately having an AI assistant sounds amazing. Yeah, it does. It's funny. I don't know if you ever listened to the jerky boy tapes. Yeah. Um, but the first thing I thought of was the Jerky Boys and just kind of how funny uh, it would be. And I instantly, you know, if this thing becomes real, I'm going to sick them on all the spam callers that I have uh, trying to uh, pretend they're, they're other people. So right. that, that should be fun. Yep. Uh, what about MS Build? It was uh, a nice overlapping time frame for this. Uh, you, you had several different stories that you wrote up about it. What stood out to you from... Was it their IoT direction, AI? The number one thing for me was just how much Microsoft has come with 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 IoT and and in my context, let's think of industrial IoT. The the billions of endpoints that are going to be out there um, managing you know, oil pipelines, smart cities, and and things like that. I mean, the the consumer stuff is still out there, but. But I was really impressed with how far they've come. On my tracker four years ago, I probably would have put Microsoft in 10th in terms of from an architectural perspective and comprehensiveness. But uh, with the addition of Azure Sphere, Azure IoT, Windows IoT, um, Azure IoT Central and all their accelerators, plus integration of Azure Stack, I mean, they're to me in the top echelon of, I'll call it horizontal IoT platform uh, providers. I mean, huh. now I know where all the resources have gone at Microsoft. This is a big deal. And if you remember a couple weeks back at, at RSA, they, they actually introduced Azure Sphere, which included yeah. a secure um, MCU. So yeah. that, that was definitely the, the top for me. Some of the sexy stuff that they introduced uh, at the show were DJI and Qualcomm right. uh, integrations. Uh, DJI is going to be using all of, of their tools, and DJI introduced an SDK on Windows, where essentially on your notebook, not only are you controlling the drone, which, by the way, you can today from an iOS or Android device, but you will actually be doing inference, machine learning inference, on that notebook using um, Windows uh, ML and Windows IoT. Right. And I thought that was like, what a great, what a great way to use the PC. It's about, it, it's about damn time. Um, the other thing that I thought was cool with Qualcomm was essentially uh, there was a, I can't just call it an SDK because it includes hardware, but essentially it's using uh, Qualcomm's intelligent camera platform mm. uh, with uh, Azure Azure IoT, which which will actually do inference 
on the camera. So right. you train it inside inside of Azure, the big cloud or Azure Stack, and then you deploy that inference solution through a container right onto that Qualcomm camera. So v- mm. very impressive. And probably the the final IoT thing that I saw is is Connect is back. Right. So yes. So this whole notion of using structured light to be able to build a digital world from the real world, right? There's a lot of things going going on, and sometimes we forget that it was Microsoft that's first. So, um, by the way, I heard this was also a Qualcomm-based solution mm. uh, at the show, but but essentially. Uh, imagine if you have a drone or if you have a uh, a robot, you know, walking or with wheels being able to map the room. So didn't work out too well on Xbox. I could totally see it working out um, here. Yep. They also announced the uh, Project Brainwave officially which is a, an Azure AI infrastructure project doing real-time AI on the cloud and edge. But what I thought was interesting here is they're actually partnering with Intel and using the FPGA products that Intel has built for to create the server infrastructure, right? So not just going the CPU route, not going GPU route, finding a, a good mix and balance of product uh, that works with the Intel FPGA segment, you know, that they acquired from Altera. So, uh, pretty interesting there. Office 365 got a lot of attention. Microsoft 365, um, new features like Timeline were were dissected and talked through, and they went through the developer uh, in- innovations or implementations of how to get you know applications working with Timeline. Timeline, which I think will be really powerful. What did you think about sort of uh, the emphasis of Windows itself? I'm not not surprised at all. This has been a long time coming. Uh, when you look at just the way that Microsoft is doing packaging and and also the relevance of an operating system versus the applications and use cases. So yeah, uh, I, listen, I, I'm sure it was a letdown for a lot of people. And by the way, I, I still think there's a lot of innovation that can be done on on the PC platform, but. Uh, I was excited by about uh, stuff, uh, Timeline on the phone. Uh, I'm a big fan of Timeline, mm-hmm. and it's not just uh, available on the PC. It's going to be available on iOS uh, and on, on on Android, which I thought was awesome. And also the ability to interact with your phone accurately. Now, I've, I've used three or four apps that, that tried to do this, but I'm hoping... Uh, this Microsoft-supported app in the OS will allow me to seamlessly uh, work through my phone notifications, pictures, yep. and messages on the PC itself because that those are my two go-to devices just like most people out there. Yeah. Also, I, oh, and they did announce on day two with Qualcomm uh, the 64-bit SDK for Windows on ARM. So I didn't want to leave that out. So now developers can create 64-bit ARM applications that will run better on Snapdragon and any applications that required 64-bit for some architectural reason now will be able to run natively uh, on there. The SDK is new. It's out on uh, Visual Studio Preview that uh, that launched. And uh, they're even enabling people to encode Win32 ARM 64-bit applications, which basically means legacy apps that are ARM 64-bit compatible as well. So that you can just, if even if you don't get it from the store, you just oh, no. something like that for off of uh, off of a software dev's website. 
and run it. So still still continuing that push with the with the Windows on Snapdragon slash Windows on ARM, always connected PC side of things as well. So a lot of good stuff there. Yeah. Hey, I, one thing I, I did want to add is yeah. is so so I. I did get to talk to the engineers on Project Brainwave and, and call me thoroughly impressed. Okay. This is not some smokescreen. This is heavy-duty engineering, really reprogramming FPGAs, okay? Um, and, and it's impressive. And they're gonna, they say they're going to take this to the edge. So yeah. expect to have FPGAs on the edge, and whether that's an edge server uh, or whether that's an edge device, they are committed to FPGAs for inference and other that's, things. That's interesting. Interesting. Which kind of leads into the the next story. There was kind of, I don't know if it was in a build-up to I.O. and, and build and, and these different conferences that were happening, but uh, Intel and NVIDIA kind of had a little bit of a back and forth on this AI debate um, where Intel posted a blog on its site discussing some performance leadership that it claimed to have in the AI space uh, for an inference based on some benchmarking and some data uh, from Amazon and some applications and some servers uh, on Amazon, mostly based on kind of like natural language processing, for example. Uh, And then not a surprise, two days later, NVIDIA has a post on their blog talking about their leadership position in AI uh, from different algorithms and different uh, uh, capabilities, I guess. And it, it really kind of, I wrote up a story that, that went up on MarketWatch kind of talking about what this back and forth really was about or, or, or what was happening. And, it, and it's, it's just a continuation of Intel needing to prove that it is taking the AI space seriously and that it has not just one weapon with which to do it, right? A lot of people looked at the hiring of Roger Kaduri to build a discrete GPU as kind of like, oh, this is what Intel's going to do for AI. But you've got to remember that they have they have the Nirvana product, they have Movidius, they, uh, and in this most recent post, they were talking about using Xeons for AI processing, right? And a year ago, a year and a half ago, when I would talk with Intel and the Xeon group about, you know, what's your AI strategy? And it was very much a, well, we don't, we know we're not the best at it, but there's tons of, there, there are thousands and thousands of Xeon processors that sit idle overnight or in key sessions, right? Well, there's no reason why you couldn't be utilizing this and taking, you know, better advantage of your resources. And that shifted now to where the software stack is up to a place where they feel comfortable. Hey, in, in these specific neural networks where, dependencies on past data and calculations are important and it's not as easily parallelizable, well, whatever it is, easily made parallel. Uh, Hey, our processors can do pretty good at this. And that should sound pretty familiar, right? Anything that is, is very easily made into parallel instructions goes to a GPU. That's just kind of what GPU compute has always been, right? And stuff that is branched and, and out of order or may have out of order properties to it is is more difficult on that. So it was, it was kind of an interesting dive into how these two players are, are treating it. But if you look at, you know, like we talked about the NVIDIA earnings and its data center, which is all AI, right, is huge growth still. So, you know, was it 66%, I think, from from year over year so nvidia is not really slowing down at this and intel is not used to playing catch-up so it's interesting to see how they how they move and market here yeah i'm i i I think the um the theater is fun 
Um, in the end, I think everybody can agree that there's different kinds of workloads and there's different types of, of chips that do different workloads better. And I think depending on what's more important to you and what timing you're looking for and how much effort you're willing to put into something, yeah, um, I think there's room for, for everybody. I think what Intel has done, though, is they have woken up to the fact that uh, real GPUs are important and hence the Raja uh, um, in investment. The Altera investment, the uh, Nirvana uh, mm-hmm. acquisition, I mean, all roads lead uh, to, to Intel uh, getting that. And, and I think that the, the thing that I'm expecting is for Intel to be the first company to pull together um, a programming model that more easily allows you to do that, very similar to what Qualcomm does on the smartphone side, where the Qualcomm enables you to arbitrate between CPU, GPU, and DSP. Yep. I'm expecting Intel to, to let you bop between CPU, GPU, FPGA, fixed function accelerator like AVX12 and uh, uh, 5.12 and Nirvana. Right, yeah. So that, that to me is the long-term big win for Intel and the question is is how quickly can Intel do that and and how high performance and low power will their discrete parts be yep it'll be interesting to see let's say uh, I wanted to get into uh, one or two more topics that we tried to get in last week and kind of ran out of time uh, oculus go and now Lenovo Mirage solo VR headsets have launched they're both powered by Qualcomm chips uh, discrete the Lenovo Mirage solo power, powered by the Snapdragon 835 the oculus go by the Snapdragon 821 so there is a you know a fairly substantial difference in performance capability giving Lenovo Mirage the edge and just raw horsepower. Uh, but they are very different technologically as well. The the Oculus Go is 200 bucks, 199. It is a 3 DOF device, meaning 3 degrees of freedom. Um, there's no walking around in a physical space or even really dramatically leaning forward or backward, right? It doesn't track that type of thing. The the Lenovo device is 6 DOF, 6 degrees of freedom. Um, that allows you to lean forward, back, move side to side. Not quite free roam in a in a in your house or something like that. It's not. We're not up to that level where it's able to overlay over your couches and stuff. But you do have a lot more flexibility there. But it's a more expensive device. It's three ninety nine. It's a four hundred dollar four hundred dollar unit. And Lenovo does have a three D camera that goes with it as well uh, for an extra. I think it's two hundred bucks. That is um, allows you to take three D videos and photos that are then viewable in um, an impressive fashion in the freestanding headset uh, device. Now I've, I've had the, I've had both of these now and I've had to go for over a week as it, as it is now. And uh, on the Oculus go itself, I will say came away way more impressed than I thought I would be for $199 free, uh, uh, not free, uh, untethered device. Um, the screen is LCD rather than OLED, meaning that the darks aren't quite as black and the contrast ratio isn't as high. But uh, because it is LCD, the the screen door effect that has bothered me forever, even in the high-end you know, Oculus Rift and HTC Vive headsets has bothered me a lot, is reduced tremendously. Like not just a little bit, by, but, a, but a lot. Like you can read text on uh, things 
in these VR spaces way better than than you could before. So I came away pretty impressed with that. The performance is, is relatively good. Obviously, these are different levels of experiences. If you're used to PC-attached VR, right, the games are going to be very different. The interactions are very different. But for media viewing and, and watching movies and stuff like that, obviously, it's going to be able to handle it. Uh, the Lenovo one I've only tried on a couple of times so far, just recently getting it in. Uh, it is powered by... Google Daydream. So while the Oculus Go, you launch into the Oculus store and landing page with the with the Lenovo device, you launch into Google Daydream. And uh, it's, it's probably a holdback right now. Technologically, it's fine and the apps work great. There aren't a lot of applications in the Google store, in the VR store, that take advantage of the six degrees of freedom, right? Because this is one of the first devices that can really, really take advantage of that. And I know you've got an Oculus Go in too. I got an Oculus Go, and I am, like you, very surprised at at how good the experience was. And it's funny, I I then used the, the big person Oculus, and that whole screen door thing just bugged the heck yeah. out of me. Um, but I was I was really surprised at, at how fun it was. Um, I saw you did a live stream from it as well. <laughs> I did. It was crazy playing a zombie killer game. Surprise! Uh, yeah. In there, and it, it was it was a lot of fun. And I'll probably be doing some some streaming today. It's so funny. I I now want better battery life. I mm. could actually see spending more than two hours. I mean, I've only done two tranches of two hours, but every time it went all the way to the edge of of not having enough uh, battery life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Like I watched two episodes of a TV show, two hour long episodes of a TV show using the Plex VR app, which is just basically you can access your Plex library in this kind of simulated big giant screen inner entertainment area. And I, I think I had tried this before on like a, on a slot in phone, like a Samsung S8, I think, but those have OLED screens and the screen door effect is still real in there. Uh, with this, I, I was, other than the absurdity of sitting on my couch in front of my TV <laughs> using the VR headset because I just wanted to try it out, um, it it was actually watchable. And I, w- I, yeah, I was like you. I kind of went an hour and 40 minutes wearing this and it wasn't uncomfortable and my eyes weren't hurting and I didn't feel nauseous. And uh, it was a much better experience than I expected. So um, I think there's there's a ton of runway for these untethered headsets, right? I, I still think... VR has a, has a lot of growth potential. It's going to be way slower than people expected it to be. I don't think it's dead by any stretch of the imagination, um, especially if we can get people to understand the difference between the $12 Walgreens add-on that they buy at the checkout, you know, by the candy bars that grandma picks up for a birthday gift and something like this that is now no longer 600 bucks plus a $800 PC and instead is now $199 for a really good experience that you don't have to have anything else uh, to, to utilize it. So I, like I said, I think we were both, both pretty impressed by that. So I'll have some more thoughts on the Lenovo one as I use it a little bit more this weekend as well. Maybe one last thing here real quick, Xiaomi going IPO trying to get into the US. I believe they were originally targeting $10 billion in their IPO. I think they may have lowered that a little bit since last week down to $8 billion. Uh, It hopes to enter the US, but there are some hurdles for that. 
one, the U.S. phone market's kind of saturated. It's 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 a hard area to get into. We're not on the huge growth scale like maybe someplace like India would be. Uh, and also, you've got the complications of, you know, hey, U.S. intelligence agencies, maybe a little skeptical of these Chinese companies these days, and that trade war with China that keeps going back and forth. Um, and then, if you want to get even more specific, the carrier partnerships are complicated. Just ask Huawei. What do you think about uh, Xiaomi's capability here and um, chances of success for this type of stuff? So I want to separate the uh, the politics, uh, you know, potential real security issue and, and their ability to get in here. So uh, first off, I think we all need competition. More competition is better. I like Xiaomi's value proposition. I think that they're probably going to have a challenge just getting uh, people who aren't inside of the tech bubble to be able to pronounce their name. Easy, you right. know, simple, simple stuff like that. Huawei had issues, and I think Xiaomi's going to have issues. And I don't think Xiaomi's going to be satisfied just selling to Chinese Americans uh, like uh, La Echo uh, ended up doing. So yeah, I, I hope they do well. They use Qualcomm chipsets, so I don't think they're going to have certification issues. Unlike ZTE and Huawei, they do not make networking. Equipment. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Uh, I, I think they are perceived as not as tied into the Chinese government, communist government. So I think that will help. But I, I just don't know, Ryan. I, I hope it happens. I hope they come. Free trade uh, helps uh, everybody. And yep. I just, I'm hopeful. Interestingly, Xiaomi, I believe, is, yeah, they're the manufacturer of the uh, Oculus Go as well for that. So something to keep an eye on. Um, all right. So that uh, I think that's plenty for this week. A little bit over on our timing here, but obviously still a lot going on. We will have more for you guys next week. If you missed any back episodes, you want to see what we were talking about, uh, you can find all that at the Tech Analysts. Dot com, or you can find the podcast on iTunes or Google Play or any of those other locations that you would normally find your podcast. So thanks for joining me, Patrick. Great being here. Talk to you next week. Yep. See you guys next time.